I am so excited to have part two of our conversation with Karen Buckwalter. She was such a wealth of information that she gave us a part one and part two. So we are kicking off part two today. Before we get started, I just want to let you guys know that if you're interested in getting Stable Moments certified and you want to open a Stable Moments location, there's a few ways to do that. So we still have some in-person events. Atlanta is happening in September and there's only two slots left. So by the time you listen to this, there may or may not be a slot left. Uh, but the, we do have an in-person training in Illinois. So go on stablemoments.com slash get dash certified or just go to our website and click the join us button to see that. But launch this week, we actually have an online course now. So it is a 42 lesson multimedia jam-packed training curriculum that you guys can take in the comfort of your own home and get certified to start this program. And then of course, after that, you can uh, talk to me, you have consultation with me, I will make sure that you've got your strategic plan and your implementation plan all set so that you can be successful in serving these kids and starting a mentor program. You may not know, but if you become a Stable Moments location, you actually get unlimited access passes to the mentor orientation online. So basically all your mentors can just go online and they get the classroom portion of their training taken care of. So everybody's getting trained the same way across sites and it takes a whole lot off your plate. And you know, we used to have sites collect their own pre and post test data and now we are having you actually just send participants to a form where they submit their data pre, mid, and post. So you just have to send them the link and then we take care of collecting all that data, putting it into a spreadsheet, running it through uh, statistical analysis software so that we can tell you, you know, what impact we're making. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to know, is this evidence-based and do you really know that you're developing life skills in kids? So we would like to answer that question and we can only do that through the data that our sites give us. So we have made it even easier to collect that data. All right. So those are my wins for the week, but I'm telling you, it was not all easy, uh, this time in our lives in 2020 is crazy. And sometimes I just, feel like it's an uphill battle to get like some of the smallest things done. Uh, And sometimes I just like get down on myself because I will be trying to do a million things and then something crazy will happen. Like the baby will push over a whole gallon of paint onto the kitchen floor and I wonder how we're going to get out of this mess without throwing the whole baby away. So I just want to like give you guys some perspective that I have had to use recently because I don't know if you guys ever feel like you're riding the struggle bus, but I'm telling you, sometimes I am riding the struggle bus and I think it's really important to acknowledge that that these times are hard and that some of the things we're trying to do are impossible or are very difficult during this current climate. So I want to give you guys a break and tell you that you're, you're doing amazing, but I also want to give you permission to get off the struggle bus, okay? Because 
sometimes I feel like I'm going through my day and it's like one thing after another and or I'll see other people going through their day and it's one thing after another and they'll say something like, oh, this whole day has just been rough or I'm having a bad day. And I just want to give you some perspective that, you know, you're not necessarily having a whole bad day. You don't necessarily have to throw away the whole day because you've had a series of events that suck, you know, so far. And sometimes I'll be like halfway through my day and I will realize like, oh shoot, did I get on the struggle bus this morning? Because you can just like hit pause. You can just like ask the bus driver to stop and you can choose to get off that bus and wait for the appropriate bus that is not the struggle bus. And the reason I say this is because we're so quick to kind of throw it all away, right? I feel like practicing the art of turning it around is super important. And I'm not saying to not acknowledge and I'm not saying to steamroll through your problems and not say that you're having a tough time if you are, if you're struggling, if this is just too hard for you. If that's the truth, that is fine. But you can take steps in the direction. You can make a choice to have things go better. And the appropriate bus might look like the gratitude bus. You know, you need to get off this bus all the time when I'm struggling. The first thing I think about is people in a much worse situation or that I'm grateful that, hey, we had we had food this morning. Hey, at least I have a kitchen to pour all this paint over. So you can get off the struggle bus and get on the gratitude bus. You can get off the struggle bus and get on the productivity bus. You can get off the struggle bus and get in the meditation bus, whatever bus you want to get in, but hopefully it's a positive bus. And I want to give you the power of choice because you are going to give those you serve the power of choice. Okay. So they're one of the things that kids with trauma have usually is, uh, all is lost mentality. Oh, all is lost. I'm just stupid. I'm just this. This is all stupid. I've ruined everything. Might as well not even try. Okay. So the more that we can actively choose our perspective and how we're going to keep trying and how we're going to keep showing up. And yes, this sucks right now, but it doesn't mean that anything else needs to suck. It doesn't need to be a domino effect for the rest of your day, the rest of your week, the rest of your life, the rest of your month, all of 2020, right? People are already throwing away all of 2020. And I get it, but tomorrow's a new day. In fact, the next five minutes is, is a new day, is a new five minutes that you can make choices in. And this speaks to our program as well, because we talk about attainable goals and we talk about breaking things down. There are recovering addicts that literally go through their day minute to minute. They are going to stay sober for the next th 60 seconds. And after that 60 seconds, they're going to stay sober for the next 60 seconds. Because you know what? It's way too much to say that you're not going to have a drink until five or you're not going to have a drink today. Okay. So breaking things down into minutes is fine. Let's bring back our control. Let's acknowledge this sucks. That was a failure, whatever it is, you know, but let's make choices minute to minute to be intentional and to show that we can show up in the way that we want to intentionally show up because you have a part in your struggle bus. 
you are choosing to stay on the struggle bus. Now, there's a million people out there that are legitimately on the struggle bus and didn't choose to be on the struggle bus. And a lot of those are the kids that we serve. And there's plenty of populations that are facing insane oppression and struggle and suffering. Okay. So I'm not saying that this isn't a bootstraps thing. This isn't, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you have personal accountability and make yourself better. But there is a million times that I am choosing to stay on the struggle bus. There are a lot of times that I could choose to turn things around. And it's my privilege to be able to do that if I'm not in a true state of struggle and desperation and oppression and all of that, then it's my duty to choose to be better. I mean, how many of us have chosen a exercise routine or we've chosen something healthy for ourselves? We're going to start meditating. We're going to eat right or whatever. And when we go off our path, when we get on the struggle bus, which is going off our path and we eat something that we're not supposed to, or we don't run or work out for two days. Uh, how many of us say, well, I'm going to get back on it August 1st. I'm going to get back on it in September. I'm going to get back on it after this week. Why can't we just choose in that moment when to get back on it? Why do we want to like, well, let's just ride out the struggle bus for the next six stops so that we feel even worse about ourselves. No, there's something weird about our human nature where we just say, eh, let's just throw this whole month away. And I really want to encourage you to just acknowledge it. I mean, you can say like, I'm taking a break. You can acknowledge taking a break, but you don't need to throw, not all is lost because you got on the wrong bus. Okay. You don't need to ride the struggle bus until it stops at the end of its route. You can just choose to get off. So I, I just say that because changing our perspective and I really say it to, to talk to myself, but changing our perspective and getting back in intentionality, getting back to being aligned is really important if we're going to set an example for other people. I know that I want to be a beacon of light for those that I serve and that doesn't mean not that doesn't mean not acknowledging my feelings, not acknowledging where I do struggle, not acknowledging that I have emotions and feelings and that sometimes I take on too much and all of that. But it does mean that I need to be intentional and positive, and positive even about the struggles. So even if you have a whole gallon of paint that's been poured all over your kitchen, Coming at it with a positive attitude and realizing in the grand scheme of things how small those potatoes are, even if you're completely freaking out because you're pretty sure that you just did irreparable damage to your grout. It's small potatoes. And for whatever reason, we all, we seem to get off track by small potatoes and we seem to worry and stress. And so I am just giving you permission to join me in acknowledging when we accidentally got on the struggle bus and getting off. I don't know if that was helpful. I don't know if you find yourself on the struggle bus at any times. I do know that the kids we serve will find themselves in a position where all is lost and they feel like they cannot be successful and they don't even want to try. And so giving them, acknowledging that they 
feel a certain way and then giving them the lighthearted encouragement to see the world in another way to see that they could maybe try, maybe just a little, maybe they could just shift their perspective on what they're capable of. That's really what we want to do. And so we've got to do it with ourselves, okay? It's just amazing how much we would be encouraging to somebody else and we would uplift somebody else, but it's rare. We just don't show up for ourselves the way that we show up for others. So that's what I am encouraging you to do. All right, we are going to go into part two with Karen Doyle Buckwalter. You guys should follow her on Facebook. I've linked to everything in the show notes and let's jump right in to part two. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma from foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids and beyond. We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. So you also tell this story about um, parents bringing their child into a therapy session and they're singing, if you happen, you know, clap your hands. And the kid is like not having any of it. And they're just saying, shut up every time. And so the therapist just changes the lyrics and says, if you're happy and you know it, say shut up. And then they can all, they all start singing the shut up song and the kid sings it and they can all laugh about it. So, so this is a super important lesson for knowing when to be able to kind of be playful and engage. But I do think it's difficult for parents to know, you know, when do we correct and say that that's not nice. And when do we say this is, this is a perfect time to engage playfully? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think we can always start out with playfulness. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if some, you know, even a lot of times, um, you know, when we're working with kids in a home, um, we start setting limits about what, what, can be said or not said, um, or, or what you can do. And the first step though, is the kids will test us and they'll like mutter something under their breath and we'll be like, wait a minute, what did I just hear? And they'll be like, Oh, nothing. So, so we know, we know that they're testing us just to see, and, and we can, we, we don't have to say, we said the rule was that you can't say that. And now you're going to have a consequence for saying that Mm. our first approach is being playful. They're testing out. Will they notice? Will they do anything? Will they say something? Um, and so, I mean, I think in most situations we can initially approach it with playfulness if we can control our own emotions and affect. Yeah, and I think that you just brought up a great point about uh, not ignoring. And I think, you know, we work with our programs, non-clinical, the program uh, directors are non-clinical, and the mentors, of course, are are non-clinical. So, but I think regardless of who you are, if you're in this mentor role, um, not ignoring something that just happened, and I think it's a lot of times, especially if we're not the parent, and I'm not saying if you just see a kid out that you should intervene, but if you're mentoring a child, uh, it's, it's like our human nature. We want to just like pretend something didn't happen because it's awkward or we don't want to set the boundary or do we really want to go there? But I, I usually say that 
the sooner you can kind of jump in to that awkward water and just say, what was that? Or, uh, or call it out or label it, then the, or hold the boundary, then the easier that will get and probably the less far, farther it will be pushed in, you know, subsequent mentor sessions. Right. So I'm not big on ignoring and um, I'm not saying we should never do it. I mean, that, that, right. that's the hard thing about some of this is we can't give like this cookbook approach if this happens, do this. But many parents will have been told by therapists, I mean, it's a very common thing in behavior modification, which is a, one of the predominant ways that we work with psychological problems, unfortunately, because I don't really believe in a lot of that, especially for the kids that we work with, but um, is ignore it. Like they will have been told by a psychiatrist, by a therapist, by a book to ignore the behavior. And so I, what, what that leads to is ignoring too much. Exactly what you're saying. Like, no, like, no, you can't ignore them hitting you and calling you an F and you know, B. I mean, you, you can't do that. Like we've got to, we've got to do something about that. Um, because what will happen is the parents are told to ignore it and then it'll get better, but instead they ignore it and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think there's a real art to this because sometimes you can ignore something, but like with the example I gave you earlier, it was like, wait a minute, what was that? And, and the kid's like, oh, nothing. But they know I heard it. Mm -hmm. I'm gently setting a limit. Like I do mean business. Like I'm not going to just ignore that if it's been ignored before. Um, and I think also like if, if kids like say something in a cer certain way, um, you know, oh, that really sucks or I'm not doing that. I think it's better and more connecting to say, you really don't want to do this. You're not happy about it. Um, where people get tripped up is that doesn't mean you change what the plan is. Mm -hmm. Like you can, this is something that people just really struggle with. They think if you acknowledge how the child's feeling, that means, okay, say they're, they're feeling upset that it's time to leave. You can say you're upset that it's time to leave and still leave. Like it's not what, I don't know what happens, but we get in our mind that if I acknowledge their distress, then I have to alter my behavior or I have to change the situation. Um, that's not, that's not true. You can, you can, um, validate someone's feelings and still continue with the plan. And I think that is a way to let the child know, I hear you. I see you. I get that this is hard for you, even though we're still going to do this. You know, um, I'm not saying that you say all that, but right. just noticing what the child, validating the feeling that the child has it's almost like people are scared to do that because then they think, well, then if I say they're sad about leaving, we can't leave. Well, no, you can still leave. If I say they're sad about turning the TV off, then we can't turn the TV off. No, you can still turn it off. <laughs> um, you, it, it, one is not mutually exclusive of the other. That's, that is so good. That is really good because I think, uh, especially with the, <clears throat> there's parents that listen to the podcast, but there's um, service providers that listen to the podcast. And I think, um, because our program is non-clinical, a lot of times we're nervous of, are we diving too deep? 
are we now trying to do therapy here? And I think that just acknowledging and validating someone, anyone, is, is a good practice. And it doesn't mean that you're diving into a therapy session. Uh, we, we teach to read behavior as language. So if a kid's doing, you know, rather than reacting or taking something personally, we're just reading it as they're struggling right now. If a kid were to say, I'm struggling right now, rather than call you an effing bee, then you probably would respond differently to I'm struggling right now. So we try to read that as language. Um, so we just empathize and validate. But for parents who are listening, how do you help a child dig into those underlying causes of behavior? Well, I mean, I do think that sometimes that, that can take being involved with a therapist. I think that we are trained in seeing what is not being said at maybe a deeper level than maybe the average person is thinking about it. You know, that that's kind of, kind of what we do. But mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the parent can just say what they think. I mean, these parents know their kids. They know them better than anybody. Mm -hmm. And what's the worst case scenario? You say, I think you're really sad about that. And the kid gets mad, you know, no, I'm not sad, I'm mad. Well, okay, now we're more connected than we were. I got that wrong and, it, and it's mad. Or no, I'm not sad. Well, then you could at least say, well, can you share what you are about it? I mean, so, I mean, I think the other thing is you don't have to be right. I mean, you're not, we're not suggesting you say to your kid, you're sad. And if the kid says they're not, you say, yes, you are, <laughs> you know, I mean, go with what you think um, might be happening. And like you said, you know, is it really ever wrong to validate how you think someone would be feeling? I mean, I really can't think of a lot of situations where that would be not a good idea now, you know, and, and this would probably be a whole other podcast, but some of this um, is talked about in my book in terms of based on your own history, these things may be harder or easier. Um, I'll work with sometimes with parents who will say, we weren't allowed to be angry in my house. And I mean, that is very mm -hmm. deeply entrenched into who they are. Um, so then they get a kid that's angry a lot. And they're really at a loss mm -hmm. of what to do. I mean, if you grow up in a house where you're not allowed to be angry and everyone suppresses anger, and then you have a child in your home that is like screaming, yelling, kicking, biting, you're immediately going to be like overwhelmed, confused, not sure what to do. Uh, this isn't how it was in my house. Um, you don't, the way we parent in a situation like that is pulling up internal representations from our own childhood, our own history of how we were parented. How did my parents handle anger? Well, how many pictures are you going to have about that? Zero, because you weren't allowed to be angry. So, right. I mean, there's other things too in terms of why we can tell some parents they need you to validate that emotion, but then they're not able to. In the heat of the moment, they're not able to. Mm -hmm. And that becomes like another set of work. I would say, I, I think there are, I kind of mm -hmm. think of the parents um, that I work with and I, they kind of fall into three groups. There's this one group that is like, oh my gosh, I never heard of any of this. This all makes so much sense. 
I'm going to go try some of this. Oh my goodness, it's working. What's the next book I can read? If only I had known sooner. Da, 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 da. They're sort of like, the, you give them the information, they're kind of off to the races, you know, and those are the ones that make us feel really good about ourselves. You know, we feel like we're being really helpful and, and we feel like, oh, wow, we're giving information that really works and, you know, all of that. And then there's this other group at the other end of the continuum. We're like, I don't believe any of this. This is bull. Um, this isn't how I was raised. This isn't how I'm going to do it. Um, so we have a whole set of issues there that we have to deal with with that group. But then there's the biggest group, I mm -hmm. think, is a middle group where they're agreeing with everything that I'm saying and they're reading the books and yeah, that makes sense. But then they go to try and do it with their kids and they can't do it. And that mm. they're, they're very sincere. They really want to do it. They're, they're paying money to maybe come and see somebody for help. Um, they might even think that they're doing it, but like when you watch an interaction with their child, you're like, hmm, yeah, that's not, <laughs> that could use a little tweaking. <laughs> um, and so it's really that group, um, that is most, uh, was most of interest to me. Like, why would you know all of this information? You could even teach it to somebody else, but you kind of can't execute it. And what I began mm -hmm. to understand was that relates to their own history. Um, and, and I do talk about this somewhat in the book. Um, and unless some of that is looked at and worked on, they're going to really struggle to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that self-awareness uh, just is so imperative to all of our work. I mean, whether you're a social worker or you're a mentor or you're a parent or you're a friend or you're human on this planet, um, the, the self-awareness is going to help you so much. And, and it's why it's so difficult sometimes when um, we get in a place where we feel rigid or we feel like it's the other person's problem. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a coworker, if it's a parent that you're dealing with, if it's a, you know, we just are like, if it's our husband, it doesn't, you know, if he would just, and we have no control over what he would do. So, uh, so much, but, uh, but I, I think a lot of the parents I worked with needed to, needed to be able to vent that, needed to be able to vent that, like, this is how frustrating mm -hmm. this is, this relationship is. And there might be a lot of things, not only how they were raised, but possibly grieving the fact that maybe they weren't able to have kids of their own. I mean, just a whole bunch of series of life events that maybe haven't been able to be worked through. So I just, you know, I know we talk about holistic care and we talk about the parents being there with the family therapy and all of that, but then comes, you know, marriage counseling and comes your individual work that you're doing. And it's all like, it's a lot of work to be, uh, to show up in, in the most effective way. Um, and we're all, we're all doing it. We're, we're doing it as therapists. You know, we are also driven by our own histories. That's why half of us end up, you know, in my profession coming to it <laughs> because we have trauma in our own history. Um, that's been demonstrated in, right. in research on those who are drawn to this kind of work. Um, 
And another thing that um, I really work hard with parents on, and this is not going to be popular with maybe some listeners, whose behavior can you change? Like if you really get right down to it, Mm. there's only one person in the world whose behavior you can change and it's you. You cannot control Mm -hmm. how your spouse does this. You can't control what the child does. So, I mean, I try to be very upfront with parents that I'm going to ask both the parent and child to make changes. Um, When you look at um, clinical work, the work that I do from an attachment theory perspective, my client is the relationship. My client's not just the child. You know, I, if you want the, the type of therapist is like fix my kid and they take them off to a therapy room and they do some magical thing Mm -hmm. that they do. Like there's lots of those out there (laughs) that, that will just do the individual work with the child. That's not, that's not how I work. I need, I need the caregiver. Um, and I truly believe I'm completely crippled in terms of how effective I can be without the caregiver because my clients the relationship between the two so I can't just work with one and not the other I love that it reminds me of I try to tell myself that I'm the problem in whatever issue I'm having but the good news is that means I'm also the solution so if I can if I can identify my role in it uh and and realize that that's what I can control, then, then, then I can make things easier. You know, I, I used to sit with so many parents that like, I would just go through their fears with them. Like, what's your biggest fear? What, what happens if, if this continues this? And they're like, you know, if, if this continues and she's going to end up in jail and she's going to, and I'm like, and how do we get to a place that we're, we can talk to our kid that's in jail? How do we, hopefully that doesn't happen, but if that's the worst case scenario, then how do we get you to be still at peace if you mm-hmm. happen to be talking to your kid that's in jail and still loving them and still being unconditional with them? Um, and I could see kind of just relief come over because it was like they've, they've at least seen and touched what their greatest fear was and been able to realize that, that they could still be okay if that was Yeah, I think, you know, um, looking at a systems perspective, you know, that I tell parents that if you change, your child has to change. Like, if you're doing the waltz with your child and you change to the tango, the child can't keep doing the waltz. It's not possible. Um, so I don't want parents to think, I don't want to work with the children on changing their behavior too. We're, we're looking at, at the whole family system. And this was another thing where I was, I really feel sad for many of the children who were given this label of rad um, and all these ideas that went along with that because I was a, I was a well-trained family therapist. I had done a two-year post-master's training program at Menninger Clinic in family therapy. And what I was being told was, you can't look at anything with the family. 
the child has imported this horrible pathology into the family and it didn't develop in the family. And, and you know, parents, if you're going to a therapist that asks you to look at yourself and your behavior, you need to fire them because they don't understand the rad child. You know, so I was just like, oh dear, you know, I, I can't, all my family systems training, I better just ignore it or something. Um, and I think that's another one of these either or things, these black and white things that you brought up before. Um, and I had to really, as time went on, I realized like, that's not true. Like, of course, the parents mm -hmm. who perhaps are parenting this child now, whether fostering or through adoption, um, they, the child was perhaps previously abused or neglected or traumatized. And no, those parents did not do that. That is 100% true. Of course, we know that. Mm -hmm. However, those parents are responsible now that they have the child for anything that they are doing that is kind of perpetuating some of the difficulties that the child has, or mm. they are responsible for responses that they're having that are exacerbating what the child brought with them to begin with. So again, it's not that either or. Um, we really, really have to look at both. So that's one of the, the reasons I feel like a lot of the work with children um, who have this kind of history, we, we, we really messed up, you know, in some ways, um, in terms of mm -hmm. what we were telling people. Um, and I'm very glad that this is coming full circle and we're, we're beginning to understand more about this in ways that can be more helpful because many of these children were vilified um, to the degree that should have never happened. Yeah, absolutely. So I am always trying to create a more trauma-informed community at large. And so can you talk to us a little bit about big T versus little t trauma? Yeah, so I mean, where I know about big T versus little t trauma is, you know, from my training in EMDR, where a big, a big T trauma is, you know, major, you know, ongoing sexual abuse or, or these things that we really think of majorly traumatic events um, versus, you know, smaller things that happen to a person that, you know, um, they were bullied in third grade, you know, um, and they have memories of that. And I guess, I'm not sure how you're, you're approaching this subject, but um, what I have learned about this, uh, there's a couple of things. Um, first, you know, uh, it's in the eye of the beholder um, because sometimes mm -hmm. what I think would have been most traumatic for the child is absolutely not what was most traumatic for them. So I've worked with kids that had, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse. And I would think that that's what they would bring up. And now they'll, they'll, when I'm doing um, some work with them and looking at some things that traumatize them the most, they'll say, well, my parents were divorced and I had visitation with my dad. And I remember sitting with my suitcase every weekend and wondering if he'd show up and so many times just taking my suitcase back in the house because he never came. Well, that's, that's not really, I'm thinking after everything you've been through, you know, that, you know, so um, I think that there's something to, to think about there in terms of what, what we think of big T and little T and, and making mm -hmm. sure that we check that out. The other thing that I really want to point out about, um, levels of trauma or, or whatever we want to call it is 
relational trauma, trauma with those who are to protect you is a really different thing than being traumatized by, you know, a flood or a hurricane or a natural disaster or by a stranger. Mm -hmm. So relational trauma with, with caregivers and we're biologically programmed to seek protection from caregivers. And if those caregivers then harm us, we're in a terrible paradox that those who are to protect me are those who also harm me. And this is damaging in a very different way than other kinds of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, it really, it made me think of, um, a, you know, scenario where a child is sexually abused by their father and a therapist constantly, and, and everybody in their life constantly wants to bring up that as their major trauma. And when you get down to it, this, this, young adult now says, I can, my brain can wrap around the fact that he was just a bad man or he was evil and not good in my life. What, what really bothered me was my mom ignoring him over and over and over again. And really that's what was nobody standing up for me um, because they, their brain was saying, you know, obviously my mom isn't as evil or doesn't, my brain doesn't allow me to, to put her in the same category as him. So where was she? And um, it's just interesting because I guess the whole point that I, I see and that I think is interesting of this is like our assumptions on what matters. To right. People. And I think um, the idea that you're bringing up with the caregiver is um, the trauma of neglect. Um, and the vast majority of children who are in the child welfare system are there because of neglect. We get, you know, very focused on physical abuse and sexual abuse. That's not why most of them are there. Most of them are there because just no one was around taking care of them. Um, mm -hmm. So I think sometimes, as you said, we're, we're over-focusing on, on something and we really need to be sure that, that this is the child's experience or the adolescent's experience. Th that, that's the one um, thing about all of this focus on trauma is the idea that we may be imposing this and missing the real story that children and adolescents want to tell us. You know, for example, uh, I've had learned a lot from adult transracial adoptees and they'll say, I can tell you everyday microaggressions of racism and being raised in a sea of whiteness and having no one that looked like me is a lot worse than that I came out of an orphanage for me. Mm -hmm. And I'll be, you know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah wow, all right, like, because I'm like hyper-focused on, oh my gosh, this was someone that came out of orphanage care, you know, and um, so we have to be really, it's great that we're so much more aware of this, but at the same time, it's a double-edged sword that we're beginning to impose now our ideas of what really happened to this person and still not hearing their story, right? Right. Yeah, we're still, we're, we, we're trying to, we're trying to help and we're still taking away their voice. Exactly. And I think that that's the double-edged sword of all of this training um, is that it makes us start to think we're kind of the expert or, you know, we can assume, you know, that this is what's going, he's doing that out of a trauma response. Um, 
uh, well, I don't know, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I mean, let's be a little more right. curious than that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, before we talk about your book um, and where people can get it, we have a foster care crisis in in the United States. It's continuing to get worse. We have almost 500,000 children in care. What do you think we can do? Like what, if there's something that we can do to start lowering that number and help end the foster care crisis, what would you, what would you say? Okay. Well, the first thing I would start with is more support for biological parents. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times biological parents are dealing with poverty. They're dealing with um, systemic problems that um, if they had the support that many people have financially, family support, uh, wh whatever kind of natural support. So um, I would say we're not investing enough in preserving the child's biological family. Um, not even close. And it's, it makes me very sad because having worked in this field a lot of years, um, you know, there is a shortage of people. It's not like we have people lining up to, to take these kids and, you know, um, so they end up, you know, in shelters and they end up moving from, you know, home to home because someone's only a temporary placement. So the first thing I would say is looking at our systems and more support for the biological parents so the kids don't enter care to begin with. Um, the next thing I would say is once they're in care, we just need much more support for foster parents. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about programs such as yours that are developing mentors because um, I think sometimes when these kids um, go into a foster home, it's like, well, we'll get them a therapist. Okay, um, we can do that. But first of all, you know, the therapist is not going to come and take them for a few hours and give the family a break, which might be more needed than the therapy session. <laughs> you know, um, mm -hmm. I have a friend in Washington state, um, Tiff Sedela Junker that has a program called rise where she's training mentors. You know, it sounds like there could be some similarities to what you're doing. Um, so we have to surround foster families with more support. Um, and I, I get mixed feelings about respite, like just sending the child away somewhere for a while, just because of the child's deep um, sense of abandonment and possibly being unwanted. So I'm not saying that should never happen, you know, I mean, but I like mentoring programs because it's able to, to give, you know, a break to everybody without, okay, we're sending you away to another family for the weekend. Um, cause the, the, there's a lot of feelings that can come, come up for, for foster children when that happens. Again, I'm not saying it should never be used, um, but just right. a lot more supportive services um, a lot more training for therapists about working with the whole family and working with parents. Um, you can't stabilize placements just seeing a child in individual therapy. I've really like not seen it happen. <laughs> you really have to work with the caregivers too. 
Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, this I, I, idea of like individual therapy, you know, and the parent will drop them off while they go run errands. My experience, that doesn't go very far. Um, if, if we're talking about really complex kids. Um, and so those are the things, you know, it comes down to, to more support for people. In the Illinois Adoption Preservation Project, um, which was a beautiful project that did research on what, do, what is most supportive to adoptive parents. And it was talking to other adoptive parents. So that's something I didn't even mention what I was just saying, that yeah. the research demonstrated. So, you know, I think we have Zoom, we have these, um, all of these like ways that we can maybe do even online. The, the problem is, you know, whether it's a parenting class or a support group for foster parents, a lot of times it's hard for them to get there. Um, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, maybe looking at online support groups and things like that, um, you know, through Zoom and other things, the opportunity to talk to people who have been there, but who can help you come out of it. Because the downside I've seen to that is some of those groups can become very toxic. Mm and child blaming and this evil rad child, you know, and really not a lot of reflection on one's own contribution. So it has to be the right kind of parent support group. Um, yeah. Yeah, facilitated well. Yeah. Yeah, I used to run one as a, a post-adoption case manager and we had, it was pretty much, you know, a, a, all the families that were being seen by the same therapist. So they were coming from the same type of perspective in their parenting, but it was really neat seeing people that had a three-year-old and seeing people that had a 17-year-old and the 17-year-old parents being able, they still weren't out of the woods, right? But they were able to say, oh, you know, give some right. guidance on right. what happened when their kid was three. Right, because if everyone's in the weeds and no one can offer any hope, you know, that's where it can start to spin being very negative and hopeless. Um, so we need some folks that can can share, um, you know, I've gotten to the other side of some of this and it really is possible and it, it can it can work. Yeah, I really love that. And and you know with the mentorship piece, not only are you giving the parents an hour um, a, a week or however long you meet for the parents to be able to have a break, you're literally developing a community that is more trauma-informed, that understands what these parents are going through, understands what these kids are going through, pours into these kids. So, so that the parents feel a little less isolated. Right. When these yeah. We, mentors. Right. We didn't ahead. really even talk about the benefit of mentor programs for the child. Um, right. Because, um, you know, we know, uh, from Bruce Perry's work and others, positive relational experiences heal trauma. Positive mm -hmm. relational experiences. And that doesn't have to be with a therapist or somebody like that. It can be positive relational experiences with a mentor, with a teacher, with youth group leader. Um, I think we like get overly clinical about this sometimes. And that's why I love how he says that that it's positive relational experiences of any kind, you know, mm -hmm. from in the person can be in a variety of roles um, because mm -hmm. if we limit it just to therapists, we're really 
that there's not enough. I mean, it has to be more people and more support than, than what can be done in, in that forum. There's, there's not enough and it might not be the right platform. Like a kid might want to play basketball and it might be their basketball coach yes. that, you know, they can relate. And for them, that just works. Yes. That, that's the thing, you know? So yeah, more opportunities to have those positive relational experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, so, such a, such a big, big crisis we're working on here, but uh, I, I do like the direction that we're going in. And, you know, we're getting better. I feel like it was just, I, I haven't been uh, in the field for that long. And I feel like it was just, you know, 15, 20 years ago that all the rad diagnosis were coming out and it, we were villainizing children. So, you know, I think that we're definitely making progress in this field and it does, it, it feels um, new, but we're getting less and less new. <laughs> I think as as we move forward, which which has been nice to see more major players kind of come to the game and and make it less clinical, make it more approachable, and you know give us some of these tools that we need. Yeah, and you know, and I certainly never want to minimize what parents were dealing with, what parents continue to deal with, and how hard this is. And honestly, mm -hmm. a lot of parents, you know, there's 20, 25 years ago professionals were not helping them. I mean, they were, right. you know, trying to find like what, what will help, who will help and turning to maybe other parents that, that thought they knew things that would help. So, I mean, in a sense, we, we let some of those people down um, mm -hmm. by placing these children in their homes and not giving them enough support. Um, so I, I never want to say, you know, I think this is easy or I don't understand, you know, why people are overwhelmed and stressed and, and, and maybe turn to some desperate measures if nobody else knew what to do. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, this has been absolutely awesome. Can you tell people where they can find your book and how to find you? I know you have a podcast, yeah, anything that you yeah, have sure. to offer. So my latest book is a, is a parent book, parenting book. Um, it's called Raising the Challenging Child. And you can get it. There's a Raising the Challenging Child website. Um, that actually, um, although the, the book is not necessarily Christian-based, um, there is a study guide on the website if somebody that does apply scripture to the book. So um, if somebody wanted to do that through their, their church or a small group or something like that, um, that's available there for free, a study guide. Um, and then the book's also on Amazon. Um, it uh, has an audio version too, which I was really emphasizing the importance of that because a lot of parents, it's hard for them to find time to read books. And that's my, uh, so that book was written by Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, who some people might recognize Wendy from The Connected Child with Purvis and Cross. My first book was Attachment Theory and Action, and that's a more clinical book. So that goes through a lot of attachment-based therapies, like like TheraPlay, like Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy by Dan Hughes, um, a lot of different therapies um, and gives an overview of them and how they're effective with traumatized children, but they're attachment-based orient, um, oriented therapies, not like trauma therapies. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, all of my training comes through the Knowledge Center at Chadock. So 
Um, and that's where my Attachment Theory in Action podcast is produced. But you can also find it on iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Um, the podcast has a really wide range of, of folks that listen to it. We talk about, it's anything from attachment theory. So we have parents, we have therapists, we have, um, you know, and, it, and it's not just about children. I mean, we interview people who work with couples from an attachment perspective. So, you know, that's one where I'd say if you're a parent, you might go look at all the episodes and you would think, you know, there's certain ones that apply more to you than others. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to link to, um, you also have a Facebook group, that's for that's clinicians, for clinicians. Right? Yeah, so I have my professional Facebook page, um, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, LCSW RPT, because I'm also a registered play therapist. Um, so I put a lot of information on my professional page. And then for clinicians, um, I have an attachment-based therapist Facebook group that it's, um, I think, approaching close to 10,000 members from all over the world. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I will link to all of those things so that people can access you. Grab her, uh, grab this new book, Raising the Challenging Child. It was a very easy read. It was approachable. And I'm telling you, it literally gives you like what you might say and maybe what you should try to say. Um, and like in every portion, and it talks about, you know, regression and different expectation setting. And uh, like we talked about the power struggles and, and different, different approaches for all kids, not just children who have survived trauma. So super great resource. Thank you so much for giving us your time and uh, your perspective. It's really, really, really helpful. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to be with you and, and great to talk about some of these things. Thank you so much and congratulations on your book. I'm sure we will, we will connect later in, in this. Yes, space. well, goodbye for now. All right, bye-bye. Hey guys, what an amazing interview. I feel so privileged to be able to sit down with all of these people and get all this wisdom so that we can show up successfully and skillfully in these children's lives. Make sure you get Raising the Challenging Child. You can get it on Amazon. I have a link to the book and all of Karen's places she is online uh, in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. As I talked about last week, I am going to read reviews. Thank you so much for people that have left reviews on this podcast. It is so helpful. If you can go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review, I would be so grateful. For the month of August, I'm actually going to run a drawing. So anyone that leaves a review in the month of August will be entered into a drawing to win one of my books, the Stable Moments book, which is not just for people that think they're gonna uh, start a Stable Moments program. It really goes deep into practical ways that we can interact with these kids, our approach, and all of that good stuff. So it's really good for anyone in the community or a foster adoptive parent, anyone that's going to interact with a child that has early developmental trauma. So if you leave an Apple podcast rating and review, then screenshot it and email me at rebecca at stablemoments.com. Then I will add you to the drawing to get a book sent out to you. 
Okay, this week's review says fantastic service. It's five stars. It says Stable Moments is making some big waves in the trauma world. Rebecca is bright, inquisitive, and a world changer. You'll enjoy the information she brings if you do any work with kids. Ah, thank you so much. These make my day. But it also helps people find our podcast. The more ratings and reviews, the more people can get it. And it can keep me motivated to keep doing the podcast. So... Please don't just listen without doing a rating and review. Thank you so much, you guys. I am super excited for next week when we talk to Rebecca Hubbard about how we manage our feelings when we're triggered in situations with kids. This episode is going to be amazing for mentors, for program directors, and parents. It's like if you get into a situation where you're like, oh my God, I don't even like this kid or... I don't like this parent or I don't like this person I'm working with. Those are all normal feelings, but we can't bring that to our work, right? So we're going to give you practical tools on when you're there and how to deal with it. So stay tuned. I will see you guys next week.